Good morning again. And it's a great pleasure to be here. And I am thrilled to be able to teach from the Gospel of Matthew this morning, the Sermon on the Mount, comprising Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7, the most famous sermon ever preached, preached by our Lord Jesus Christ. If you read through it all in one hit, it takes 13 minutes. Which of your preachers preaches for 13 minutes on a Sunday morning? And you might well ask, well, if it, if it took Jesus just 13 minutes to get across all he needed to say, why does it take my preacher 40 minutes? And I don't have an answer to that question. You'll have to ask your preacher yourself. But we're in Matthew chapter 5, and my plan today is to preach through the Sermon on the Mount in three parts, Matthew 5, then chapter 6, then chapter 7. And I think this first talk will be the most demanding. Chapter 5 is the longest of them. There's the most material to cover. And, of course, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in one day, we can only really touch on the high points. But I hope that if you're a Christian, that you will be encouraged and blessed today. I hope that if you're, you're not a Christian that you will hear the living, powerful words of Jesus and that they will change you and, and bring life to you. If you are battling, if you're struggling, I'm certain that the words of Christ will be a great comfort to you today. So here we are in Matthew chapter 5 and we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so Jesus has a mountain for his pulpit and you cannot help but think of Moses. As we see Jesus going up on the mountainside, we think of Moses going up on the mountain, Mount Sinai. And as we see Jesus addressing his 12 disciples and the crowds beyond them, we can't help but think again of Moses and the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we see Jesus with the new people of God, and if you like, a new way for the new people of God. In fact, it's, it's better to say the fulfilment. It's not new, new. It's, it's really the fulfilment of all that the book of Exodus was pointing to. Now, just recently I looked up on the internet the top ten most envied men of 2012. And I found this very interesting. Here are the, the ten men that most men in the world would like to be like, uh, starting from the tenth place, a guy called Matt Smith, and I have no idea who he is. Someone might be able to tell me later. And then another person called Tiny Temper, and I gather he's a rap star, or with a name like that he'd have to be some kind of entertainer. And then uh, Steve Gerard, or Gerard, does anyone know who he is? We're not doing so well so far, are we? These are meant to be the, the top ten most envied men in the world. Uh, then we get to someone that we all know. Barack Obama is at seventh place. At sixth place, Hugh Hefner, the pornographer. Then fifth place, Lewis Hamilton, the Formula One racing car driver. Uh, fourth place, Mark Zuckerberg. Does that name mean anything to you, Mark Zuckerberg? Who founded Facebook, the Facebook billionaire. And then some guy called George Clooney. Don't know who he is. Don't care. Then we've got number two, Richard Branson, the, the virgin uh, mega businessman. And then number one, who do you think's at number one spot? In fact, he's on the news yesterday. <laughs> Not Homer Simpson. Number one, he announced his retirement yesterday. David Beckham is apparently the, the man that, that most men envy, the man that most men would like to be like. And I tried to find a similar list for the ladies. I thought I'll look up the ten most envied women in the world and I, I couldn't find a, a, a comparable list that, because there's only one person apparently that, that the, the ladies would like to be like. Who do you think that is? Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton, uh, married to, to Prince not Charles, the other guy, the other prince. Prince, what's his name? So that's, uh, that's who the, the, the ladies would most like to be like. So we would call these people blessed people, wouldn't we? These are the rich people. 
These are the powerful people. These are the people who you would think would, would not have any worries or any cares because they have all the riches and, and power and popularity that a person could want. And in the ancient world, the blessed people were exactly the same kind of people. They were the rich people. The blessed people were the powerful people. The Greeks thought that the, the blessed people were like the gods, people who had the same, who shared the same carefree existence of the gods on Mount Olympus. These were the blessed people. These are the people that you'd want to congratulate and applaud. But what does Jesus say? Jesus comes to us and he turns our world upside down. Because you might think that the blessed people, the happy people, the people to be congratulated are the rich, the powerful, the successful, the carefree, and then our Lord Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? The Greek word, the word for beggar. Blessed are those who look inside their hearts and see spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. And a few years ago we went to Europe and we saw the beggars in Paris. And some of them looked very well fed. But there were others who seemed to be the real deal. I remember a man with no arms and a singlet and his dog. And there was a man who was clearly relying on whatever passers-by were giving him. And one of my colleagues, Andrew Hutchins, went up to Bangladesh recently and he described the beggars. No arms, no legs, just a bucket hanging around their neck. Utterly dependent on whatever a passerby might give them. And Jesus said, blessed is the person who looks inside their heart and sees that kind of poverty, that kind of bankruptcy, who comes to God as a spiritual beggar. Nothing to give to God. Coming to God empty and saying, God, I need everything. I've got nothing. And blessed are those who mourn. Who's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about those who see their sin and their spiritual bankruptcy and it grieves them. And they mourn. We think of the Apostle Peter. Remember how self-confident he was before Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. And Peter said, all the others might abandon you, Jesus. I'll never do that. I will go with you to the death. And Jesus said, no, Peter. Before the rooster crows three times, you will forsake me as well. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And what did Peter do the moment he heard the rooster crow the third time? What did he do? The Bible says that he wept bitterly. Here was a man who was spiritually confident and now he is exposed as a spiritual beggar and he weeps and mourns. And blessed are the meek. In other words, blessed are those who are humbled by their sin. They're not proud, they're not arrogant because they know what's in their heart. They know the thoughts that go through their minds when they're on their own. They know the things that they've said behind closed doors to their wife and children and husband and family members. And they are humbled by their sin. Jesus says they're blessed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now you're only hungering and thirsting if you're empty. If you look inside and the cupboard is bare and you're craving what only God can give. And Jesus said, blessed are those people. And blessed are those who are merciful. Jesus told the story of the king whose servant owed him 10,000 talents of gold. Now, when Jesus told that parable, was it gold or silver? Someone correct me there. It doesn't matter. But in either case, in either case, when Jesus told that parable, 
people would have, would have smiled because 10,000 talents was an extraordinarily huge amount of money. It was probably more money than it actually existed in Judea at the time. $60 million worth. That, that's the, the, the modern comparison. $60 million worth. And the, the, the king's servant owed him that. And the king demanded that he pay the money back. And he said, sell him, sell his wife and sell his children until he can pay it back. And the, the man begged for mercy. And the king was merciful. And then that man had a friend that owed him money. Just a hundred denarius. A hundred days wages. He owed 60 million days wages to his king, but his friend owed him just a hundred, one six hundred thousandth of what he owed to the king. And he demanded that his friend pay that money. And his friend said, I can't do it, give me time. And he got angry with him and he began to choke him, pay me back the money. He was not merciful, you see. Great mercy had been shown to him but he didn't show mercy to his friend. And Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful for those who know what God has forgiven them. They know the enormity of the sin of their heart that God has forgiven and they can't help but to forgive other people. You can't help forgive your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your wife, your children. You can't help forgive them. But when they let you down, when they say those, those words that sting, when you know how much God has forgiven you. And so Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful, who know that they have been forgiven. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now the Pharisees were pure how? How were they pure? We're looking at the Pharisees especially in the second session, but that's right, they were, blessed. They were pure on the, on the outside. They looked good on the outside, but Jesus said, no, 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 blessed are those who crave for, the, for purity of heart, who are not just craving the, the applause of men, who are not just trying to look outwardly holy and pure and religious, but blessed are those who crave purity of heart. And blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus made peace between God and sinful man by dying for their sins on the cross. And blessed are those who seek to emulate Christ and who seek to make peace with their brothers. God has made peace with me. I will want to make peace with all those around me. And blessed are the persecuted. And we'll come to that in a moment. Can you see a glimpse of how radical this is? Because the, the mindset of the ancient world and indeed the modern world is that the blessed person, the happy person, the person that we should be congratulating is the rich, the powerful, the successful, the carefree. And Jesus completely flips our world upside down and he says, no, blessed are those who look inside their hearts and see their sin, who see their bankruptcy, who grieve for their sin, who mourn for it, who crave for the righteousness that only God can give. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are those whose spirits are broken. Why are they blessed? Look at the extraordinary gifts that will come to those who are blessed in this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or, in the original language, they will inherit the land. What does that make us think of? The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, where God lives, where God dwells, the that's the presence of God there. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit all those blessings promised in the Old Testament. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy by God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And we know in the Bible that for a sinful person to see God is, 
is death. That's why Isaiah broke down. That's why he was disintegrated when he had that that vision of the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6. A sinful man in the presence of God is death. But Jesus said, no, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God face to face in safety and in love and in perfect relationship. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the person that Jesus describes here, and it's it's worth remembering that these are not describing eight categories of people. These are eight attributes of the one person. And in my Bible, there's a subheading, the Beatitudes. Uh, now, it's got nothing to do with your attitude. It's, it's from the, the Latin word beatus, which means blessed or happy. And Jesus is describing the character of his followers. Now, what happens when you bear this character? What happens when you are like this? Well, you're different. You're going to be different to the world. You're going to be different to everyone else around you. And when you're different, you attract attention. Unwanted attention. Jesus knows that the person who is poor in spirit, who's mourning for their sin, who's humbled by their sin, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, Jesus knows that the person like this is the person who will be persecuted by the world, by those around them. And that's why he comforts us with those tremendous words, blessed are you, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And this is the only beatitude, the only one of the eight, that comes with a a little extra commentary by Jesus. So it must be very important. Look there at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Patiently endure that that persecution, Jesus says, doesn't he? Patiently. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, when you bear this character, you'll be persecuted, and when you are persecuted, endure it stoically, patiently, put on a brave face. Is that what he says? Rejoice, he says, (laughs) when people persecute you. And be glad, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How confronting. How magnificent. That when we are persecuted, Jesus doesn't call us to stoic fortitude, but to rejoicing and gladness. Because when we are persecuted, then we can know that we are with Jesus. There's solidarity there. Because he was persecuted. And there's solidarity with his his prophets of the Old Testament and with the apostles. For they were persecuted as well. Now again, when you bear the character of the Beatitudes, And the persecution comes, and it will come. It must come. It has to come when you have, when you bear those characteristics. Then what's what's the temptation? What are we tempted to do? Well, when we're up on the north coast and we go out on the beaches early in the morning, the kids and I love to see those those little crabs. You know, they they come out by the thousands, right? And uh, I'm told they're called soldier crabs, is that right? Yeah, we, we call them corkscrew crabs, and you know why. Because when you approach them, what do they do? They kind of screw themselves into the ground, as if to say, there's, there's not a crab here, there's nothing to see, go on your way. And how tempting it is when the threat of persecution comes to, to, to try to go underground to try to fly below the radar. Many years ago, I was in the Army Reserves and before basic training, it was suggested to me that I become the grey guy in the background. 
because you don't want to stand out as being in any way, not either as excellent or as uh, incompetent. You just want to be the grey guy in the background because as soon as you attract attention, then some nasty corporal will give you a hard time. So be the grey guy. And how tempting it is with the threat of persecution that we just fade into the background. Become the grey person that no one sees. It's a very strong temptation. What does Jesus say? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now there are two things that salt does. Just two weeks ago, I was up in Sydney, up at the Presbyterian Theological Centre, and some of the students took me out for lunch to a noodle bar and it was called Sea Bay Handmade Noodles. And they said, you're going to like these noodles. And so they bought me a big bowl of noodles. And they were indeed the, the, most, the, the tastiest noodles I've ever eaten. Delicious. And, I, and I'm eating these handmade noodles. And these are great. These are wonderful. And I couldn't stop eating them. And as I got towards the end, one of the students ran across and said, you know why they taste so good, don't you? No. She said, well, have you seen them making the noodles? I said, no. She said, well, afterwards, you can just go around the corner, you can watch them make the noodles. And I recall seeing it now on a documentary, how they make the noodles. And they take the dough and they stretch it out, push it back together, stretch it out. And it's quite physical work, all this pulling and stretching the dough. And as you're doing this, what starts to happen? You start to sweat. And so the, the, the student is, is giving me a demonstration. Stretching out the dough, the sweat. That's why the noodles tasted so good. It was the salt, and the salt didn't come out of the salt shaker. You see, salt flavours, salt stands out. The persecution is there on the horizon, and we're tempted to just grew ourselves into the ground and become the, the grey guy in the background. But Jesus says, no, you should stand out. You should be salty. Salt stands out in the food that it's put on. But even more than that, salt preserves. And that's the primary meaning of what Jesus is saying here. Salt is a preservative. And, and apparently when you put salt onto food, it, um, it dehydrates the bacteria, it kills it by dehydration. And so it slows down the process of decomposition. So salt is something that preserves. And what Jesus is saying here to his people is that you might be, you will be tempted to fade into the background and to not be noticed. But I am calling you to be salt to be a preservative in a world that is rotting because of its sin. A world that's abandoned God. A world that's abandoned the values of God. And we look at our own state. It's rotting around us, isn't it? Isn't it? And our nation, the values, rotting around us. And it's so easy for us to point the finger. But here Jesus said, you were meant to be salt. You were meant to be a preservative. One of our young ministry apprentices, just three weeks ago in our regular Tuesday morning prayer meeting, he prayed this prayer. He said, God forgive us. God forgive us because this, our society is rotting around us and, and we were meant to be preserving it. And it's rotting around us and so we haven't been the salt. That means that we haven't been the salt that you've called us to be. And he came to me after and he said, that prayer I prayed, was that okay? Was that right? What do you think? Yes, that's right. If our world is rotting around us, could it be that we have not been the salt, the preservative that Jesus has called us to be? But there's much more to it, isn't there? 
Not only are we meant to prevent the decay, we're also meant to be positively pointing to the good. And Jesus talks about his people being a light on a hill or a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And of course in the ancient world it was very common for a town or a city to be destroyed by invaders and then new settlers would come and they would just pound down the rubble and build a new city on top of it. And then it would be invaded again and they would pound down the rubble and build a a new city on it. And the archaeologists go to Jericho and Jericho is on a mound. And it's on a mound because they just keep building on the rubble. That's what they kept doing. And they cut down into the layers and they can see the various cities through the ages. And so cities very often were on a hill. Now a city at night that's lights on, you cannot not see it, right? It's impossible not to see it. And Jesus said, that's what my people are to be, a city on a hill, visible, out there for all to see. He he said, consider a person who lights a lamp. There they are in a dark room, they light a lamp. What's the next thing they do? Do they take a food bowl, that's what he's talking about, and put it on top of the lamp? How ridiculous, how silly. No, they take the lamp and they put it on a stand so that it lights up the room so people can see what they're doing. And we might be tempted to fade into the background. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You are to be the light, pointing people to God, pointing people to Christ, pointing people to the Saviour, pointing people to the Gospel. When we bear the character of the Beatitudes, the persecution will come, that will tempt us to withdraw, and Jesus said, don't withdraw. Go out into the world. Yes, but then if I go out into the world, if I speak up, then people will say nasty things. Of course they will. But people will insult me. Of course they will. People might prosecute me. Of course they will. Jesus promises that. It will happen. It must happen. That's no reason to withdraw because we're called to be salt and light. Now, I want to move quite quickly through the rest of chapter 5. And what Jesus is doing here is driving us back to the Beatitudes. He drives, drives us back to us, back to the Beatitudes continuously. And that, I believe, is the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, now some have, have thought that the Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate guidance for life. And uh, the great novelist Tolstoy thought that the Sermon on the Mount was the, the ultimate guide for life. And, and he, he said that if the world just lived according to the Sermon on the Mount, then we'd have a much happier world. And he started a, a commune. He withdrew from the world and he started a bit of a commune in Russia. And he absolutely failed to live according to the values of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Gandhi thought the same. Gandhi was a great admirer of Jesus and especially of the Sermon on the Mount. And he saw the Sermon on the Mount as the ultimate guide to life. And as Christians, we might look at the Sermon on the Mount in the same way. But it's not primarily a guide for life. Primarily, the Sermon on the Mount exposes our sinfulness. Because if the blessed people are the poor in spirit, if the blessed people are those who are grieving for their sin, who are humbled by their sin, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if they are the blessed people, then we need to see our sinfulness. We need to see that poverty of spirit. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount drives us to that position. It's Jesus driving us to see our utter dependence on God and his grace for everything. We're not naturally poor in spirit, but Jesus drives us to see our poverty of spirit 
with these words. Let's look at them. Verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, what's he, what's he saying here? What's he doing here? Well, he's saying that one of the purposes of God's law is to expose our sinfulness. And those who are a little familiar with Reformed theology know that uh, Reformed theologians talk about the three uses of the law. And the first is that the law is a declaration of God's will for humanity. The second is that the law is a schoolmaster which shows us our sinfulness and our need of God's grace and the Saviour. And the third is that it teaches God's redeemed people how to live. And what Jesus is saying, what Jesus knows, is that the religious leaders around him had watered down God's law. They'd watered it down, they'd diluted it, it, made it easier, more palatable. And by doing that, they had uh, weakened the law's ability to show us our sin and our sinfulness. And so Jesus says, whereas others might be diluting the law, I tell you that not the least letter of the law, and he's probably referring there to the, to the yod, the, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, not the least letter, not the least stroke of the pen. And certain Hebrew letters are distinguished from each other just by tiny little serifs, tiny little marks at the corners of the letters. And Jesus is saying, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will disappear. I've not come to abolish the law, but to reinforce it to fulfil it. And let's look at the way he does that. Let's look at how he does it. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, verse 21, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And of course there he's referring to the sixth commandment. And Jesus knows that people will read the sixth commandment, and it says do not murder, and they will say, well, I'm good then. I'm good with God then because I've not murdered anyone. I've not shot anyone. I've not run anyone down. I've not stabbed anyone to death. I'm not a murderer. And so I'm good with God. I'm okay. Listen to what our Lord does. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, it's a word that meant empty, you empty head, you idiot, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, More, moron, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see what Jesus does? The sixth commandment do not murder. I've not murdered, I'm okay. Well, you've hated and you've, you've demeaned others and you've thought badly of others and you've said nasty things about people and so you have broken the sixth commandment. You stand condemned by the sixth commandment because of your hatred of others. And then the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And again, people would have read that commandment and you might be thinking right now, well, I'm good. I'm right with God because I have not broken my marriage vows and I have not taken another man's wife or another woman's husband. I'm good with God. I haven't broken the seventh commandment. But listen to what Jesus does in verse 28. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, that, that, that's the, the second use of the law. The law drives us 
to see our sin and our need for God's grace. And then we see the third use coming out immediately after. There is intermingled with this guidance for the redeemed. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And so what Jesus is saying there is that sin needs radical action. If if your eyes according if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now he inbuilt in the way he says that, we know he didn't mean it literally, because the person who gouges out their right eye, does that really solve the problem? Well, it's still a left eye. The person who cuts off their right hand, there's still a problem, they're their left hand. So inbuilt in the way Jesus said that, we see that he didn't mean that literally. But he is saying, take drastic, radical action to remove sin and even the possibility of sin. And I have sat with men in my study who struggle with pornography and I take them to this passage and I say, you must do whatever it takes so you do not look at this filth which is ruining your thought life and ruining your witness and ruining your ability to serve in the church ruining your your present marriage or your future marriage. And they say, but I need my computer. I need the internet. Well, I need my right eye. I need my right hand. But Jesus said, better to lose what's necessary and precious than to go on sinning and to be condemned and to be thrown into hell. Yes, but, but if, I, if, I, if I get rid of my laptop or my internet connection, people, uh, that's embarrassing. People will know why I've done that. Well, it's embarrassing to, to have your eye taken out and to have to, you know, why have you only got one hand? Well, I couldn't stop sinning. What do you mean you couldn't stop sinning? Couldn't you take control of yourself? No, I couldn't. I had to do this. And so Jesus is saying, and it's not just pornography, it's it's whatever sin it is that is tempting you that we do whatever it takes to not only not sin but to remove even the possibility of sinning in that way as 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 far as we can and then look at this third aspect of the law here in verse 31 it has been said Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And Jesus there is referring to Deuteronomy 24, where Moses did indeed say to men that if you must get rid of your wife, then you might must give her a certificate of divorce. Now, why did Moses do that? Well, Jesus tells us later on in the Gospel of Matthew. It's because of the hardness of your hearts. And Moses didn't do it to make divorce easy. He did it to protect women from wicked men because what was happening was this men were kicking their wives out of the home now in a, in a society where there's no social security that was almost a, a death sentence to, to put your wife out of the home because if you put your wife out everyone thinks what? well she's a disgrace she's unfaithful she couldn't go back to her own family she couldn't find work in the community And so Moses said, if you must do this wicked thing and put out your wife, then you at least must write a certificate of divorce so that she can take that back to her family, she can take that back to her society so that she can be received back into society, so she can remarry even or at least find work to look after her and her children. That was the intent of that law, but what have the Pharisees done with that? Well, they looked at it completely the other way around and they were saying, well, Moses, Moses is letting us divorce our wives. And they, the rabbis even said, if, if, if your wife burns the food, you can divorce her. 
just write the certificate. Or if you see someone more attractive, write the certificate. And so they were taking something that was meant to protect women from the wickedness of men and they were using it to be more wicked. And this is what was going on. And, and people were saying, well, yes, I've divorced, but I did it properly. I wrote the certificate. I'm good with God. And what does Jesus say about that? I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So to those in the crowd who thought they were good with God because they divorced their wives but gave her a certificate, Jesus said, you are not good with God because God does not want men to abandon their wives. What God has joined together, let man not separate. And then he takes us to a fourth aspect of the law and we see here echoes of the ninth commandment. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. Now, the Pharisees had a way of getting around this. Now, if you made an oath by God, then that's an oath that that you couldn't break without extreme public disgrace, if you made an oath by God. And so what the Pharisees were teaching is this. Well, don't make your oath by God. Make it by uh, Jerusalem. Or or promise to keep your uh, contract by your head, the hair of your head. And what people were doing was finding ways, you see, of making promises and then breaking them by not invoking the name of God for their oaths and promises. I've made my oath by heaven. I've made my oath by the earth. I've made my oath by Jerusalem. I've made my oath by my head. So that if I have to break it, then, well, I've not uh, broken an oath made in God's name, and so I'm still good. I'm still okay. But Jesus says, you can't get out of it that lightly. Because what is heaven? It's God's throne. And what's the earth? It's God's footstool. And what's Jerusalem? It's the city of God. And your head. Do you think your head is just your own? You can't even, you can't change the colour of a single hair of your head. Maybe they didn't have peroxide back then and, and other modern hair products. But Jesus is saying, even your head belongs to God. So if you swear by anything in heaven or earth, you're still swearing in the presence of God and by God. And so your promise breaking and your oath breaking is still wicked. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Again and again and again, he's removing the excuses and the exceptions. Yes, well, I did, said this bad thing or did this bad thing, but, but I'm excused, I'm a special case. No, Jesus says. He just drives us back to our poverty of spirit, our sin again and again. Then a fifth aspect of the law. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And this is the so-called lax talionis, the, the law of retaliation. And we find this in Exodus 21. And the law of retaliation was never meant to be a law uh, to, to get justice. It was a law that was meant to constrain justice and put it into its rightful place. Because what happened in the ancient world if you knocked out the tooth of your lord and master, if you're a slave and you knocked out your master's tooth, what happened? You're as good as dead, right? If you uh, gave the king a bruise, the king would take off your head. And so there was inconsistency with the way punishment was applied, depending on your nobility, depending on your station in life. And so the lex talionis in in Exodus 21, the law of retaliation, was meant to constrain justice. Well, if you knock out someone's eye, then you're not put to death. It's just your eye that's knocked out in, in turn. And this law was taken as an excuse to get vengeance, 
to get revenge. And Jesus says, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. But if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And then finally, a sixth aspect of the law from Leviticus 19 verse 18. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And the hate to your enemy had of course been added by the Pharisees, added by the rabbis. And at Qumran, the, the Essenes, who were a religious sect that had withdrawn from Jewish society and were trying to make a, a very holy and, and godly community of people, had this saying, love all the sons of light, hate all the sons of darkness. And they were teaching that this is what makes a good person. A good person loves the sons of light, a good person hates the sons of darkness. A good person loves their friends, a good person hates their enemies. And this was a wide open door for sinful hate and an excuse not to love those around you. Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. John Dixon, in his Christ Files, which I think are excellent, where he goes into the historicity, the archaeology of the Gospels, he said when Jesus spoke those words, the people of Nazareth, there was a town that they could see, it was just on the horizon, a town that had committed rebellion against the Roman Empire. And the Romans came and did their thing. When this town rebelled, the Roman army came and destroyed everything and everyone. And the people of Nazareth would have seen the smoke rising from that town. And they would have grieved for aunts and uncles and cousins, brothers and sisters who lived in that town. And it would have been so easy for their hearts to have been full of hate for their enemies, the Romans. And Jesus said, a good person is not the person who just loves those, loves their friends, loves their family. The good person is the person who even loves people like that. Even the Roman conquerors who raised that town to the ground and killed your friends and your relatives. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So here we are at the end of chapter 5. Can you see what Jesus is doing here? Can you see what he's saying to you? You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. If you are a spiritual beggar, if you see your bankruptcy, you're blessed if you're mourning for your sin. You're blessed if you're humbled by your sin. You're blessed if you look inside and the spiritual cupboard is empty and you're hungering and thirsting for a righteousness you know you don't have. You're blessed when you're spiritually desolate and broken. And Jesus in his love breaks us down, you see. It's his love that causes him to say these things, these hard things. You thought you were good because you hadn't murdered someone. You thought you were good because you hadn't hopped in bed with the your friend's wife. You thought you were good because you loved your family. But you're not. I'm not. None of us are. What's Jesus doing here? He's opening our eyes, isn't he? He's coming with a bucket of cold water and splashing it on our face and saying, wake up! Can't you see? Can't you see what you're like? Can't you see what's in your heart? 
Can't you see how broken you are? Can't you see that pride is ridiculous? Can't you see how much you need God's grace? You see, you set the bar there. If I reach this level of righteousness, then I'm good with God. But what does Jesus do? The bar's not there. The bar's up there. Look at the last verse there in in Matthew 25. Here's the standard. It's not down there. Here's the standard. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. The infinite goodness and holiness of God himself. We fall short of that, just one millimetre. And we deserve nothing from God but his judgement and death. And so Jesus, in his love and grace, exposes the shortfall, exposes our sin, drives us to poverty of spirit, grief, hunger and humility. He knows that when you're in that place, then you'll come to God with open hands, ready to receive all the good gifts, forgiveness, salvation and life that he has to give you. Let's pray. Father, humble us, please. Father, we look in our hearts and we see this ridiculous pride, the spiritual pride, and it's satanic. It's the devil who's made it. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you for his hard but kind words. Thank you that Jesus loved us enough to obliterate our sinful pride, our spiritual pride. Father, for those of us who are harbouring pride, please demolish it today as we hear the words of Jesus and drive us back to you for your grace and mercy. Amen.